Hey, all of you What's the Scuttlebutt podcast listeners, I'm Jeff Copsetta. And this year for Memorial Day, all three of your hosts here have decided to adopt a veteran of the greatest generation and tell a little bit of their story. I decided to adopt First Lieutenant Bert Stiles. I'd like to read you an excerpt from his memoirs. Chapter 18. So to finish up. It is summer, and there is war all over the world. The war has spread from Normandy to Brittany, and the American columns are swinging in towards Paris. There's still plenty of war in Russia. The same war is still going on in the islands and in the sky over Japan. I can only think about it in terms of moments, of chunks and stretches of eternity measured in minutes. So far, I've lived through it. So far, the Lady of Luck has let me come through. There is hope as bright as the sun that it will end soon. I hope it does. I hope the hell it does. It will be a long time before I have made up my mind about this war. I'm an American. I was lucky enough to be born below the mountains in Colorado. But someday, I would like to be able to say I live in the world and let it go at that. The trouble with me is I don't even know how to start to build my share of the one world. So if I get through this, I will have to get on the ball and learn something about economics and people and things. If that is vague, it is because I do not know where to start to be specific. In the end, it is only people that count, all the people in the whole world. Any land is beautiful to someone. Any land is worth fighting for to someone. So it isn't the land. It is the people. That is what the war is about, I think. Beyond that, I can't go very far. So if we can get through this, with this war, then I'll get started. And that is where Lieutenant Burt Stiles' memoir ends, just as abruptly as his life. Burt Stiles was a student at Colorado College in 1942 when he joined the American Army Air Force. He received his commission in November 1943 and went overseas to Great Britain in March 1944. He was awarded the Air Medal and the Distinguished Flying Cross and was a veteran of 35 bombing missions. Instead of returning to America when leave was due to him, he requested to be transferred to fighters. On November 26, 1944, he was shot down in a P-51 on an escort mission to Hanover, Germany. He died at the age of 23. Bert Stiles is buried at the Ardennes American Cemetery in Belgium. And so for First Lieutenant Bert Stiles, for all of the greatest generation that we lost in the Second World War, and to you, our listeners, we thank you, and we wish you a very happy Memorial Day. Hey guys, I'm Henry Sledge. On this Memorial Day weekend, I want to commemorate Captain Andrew Haldane, U.S. Marine Corps. Captain Haldane was my father's commanding officer in K-35. This is what my dad wrote about Haldane. Captain Haldane served with the 1st Marine Division on Guadalcanal and was commanding officer of Company K at Cape Gloucester, where he won the Silver Star. During a five-day battle, he and his Marines repulsed five Japanese bayonet charges within one hour in the pre-dawn darkness. He led Company K through most of the fight for Peleliu. On 12 October 1944, three days before the Marines came off the lines, he died in action. The Marines of Company K and the rest of the division who knew him 
suffered no greater loss during the entire war. Of the day that Captain Haldane was taken from us, this is what my father wrote. Never in my wildest imagination had I contemplated Captain Haldane's death. We had a steady stream of killed and wounded leaving us, but somehow I assumed Akak was immortal. Our company commander represented stability and direction in a world of violence, death, and destruction. Now his life had been snuffed out. We felt forlorn and lost. It was the worst grief I endured during the entire war. The intervening years have not lessened it any. Captain Andy Haldane wasn't an idol, he was human, but he commanded our individual destinies under the most trying conditions with the utmost compassion. We knew he could never be replaced. He was the finest Marine officer I ever knew. The loss of many close friends grieved me deeply on Peleliu and Okinawa, but to all of us, the loss of our company commander at Peleliu was like losing a parent. Good afternoon. This year for Memorial Day, I would like to share with you guys the story of one Private Joe Gandra of the 82nd Airborne. On June 9, 1944, a new American offensive was launched by the 325th Collider Infantry Regiment outside of Lafayette, France, but was broken up on the western end of the causeway. Private Gandra's detachment came under heavy oppressive enemy fire from machine guns, pinning the men to the ground for four hours. At which point, Joe Gandra voluntarily advanced towards the enemy positions all alone, firing his machine gun from the hip. As he advanced towards the enemy position, he successfully took out three machine guns. As he continued his assault on the enemy's positions, Joe Gandra was cut down by enemy fire and was fatally wounded. Private Joe Gandra's sacrifice, heroism, and bravery went largely unnoticed until he was posthumously rewarded the Medal of Honor in 2014 by President Barack Obama. And so this year on Memorial Weekend, we hope that you all take a moment to remember those who gave it all to fight for freedom. Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts Don Abernathy and Jeff Copsetta. One of the greatest fears I had was would I be able to do my job because never having been under fire, never having been in the, in the stress of combat, everybody goes through that. And that was the greatest fear you had at any time was would you measure up in the eyes of your buddies. That was probably one of the greatest motivating factors to all of us. I think a great deal of it was based on the fact that it was so instilled in us that you can't let another Marine down. So consequently, you wanted to always measure up and do your best. The pre-landing bombardment had commenced. The din and the noise were so absolutely incredible, it's indescribable. You couldn't even yell to the man right next to you and have him hear you. I was absolutely scared to death, and so was everybody else. And I, the, the main thing that concerned me was I was afraid I was going to wet my pants. And yeah, I looked at the island, and, and all you could see, it was it just looked like a thin line. It was just a sheet of flame backed by just this huge black wall of smoke. And I thought, my God, none of us will ever get out of that place. All up and down the beach, shells were going off. Amtrak's were getting hit on the beach before they could let the guys out. You could see guys falling all along the beach because of the extremely heavy small arms fire and artillery and waterfall. So we got in off the beach as far as we could go and hit the deck um, in the sand. And ju just, as, just before I hit the deck, I happened to look down 
and my right foot missed no more than by six inches. A Japanese mine that was in the form of a 500-pound bomb buried in the sand, and it had a metal pressure plate on the top of it. A little way down the, the beach, I saw a boy step on one, and he just, it just atomized him. He just disappeared. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, a very special episode if we were to borrow phrases from the early 70s TV shows like NBC and CBS with my co-host, as you heard, Jeff Copsetta, and our very, very special guest, the one and only Henry Sledge. Jeff, Henry, how are you guys doing tonight? Doing well. Doing well. Couldn't be better. So as you guys just heard, that was um, a little clip you guys can find on YouTube of... Uh, the one and only Eugene Sledge talking about his experiences landing on Peleliu. And joining us tonight is his youngest son, Henry, who's going to, uh, I don't know, share some of their family's experiences with, um, you know, growing up with their father being who he is and his post-war years. And um, obviously talk about his book and how the production of the HBO specifics come along. And uh, we've been talking for about like 30, 40 minutes before the show. And now that we're live, Bailey's in the other room playing with her squeaky toy, as you can hear. Which, by the way, Henry, I was ecstatic. Last night I was reading the final chapters of uh, The China Marine. Yeah. And we all know that your father's dog, Deacon, passed away when he was on Okinawa. But he said when he came home, your grandmother's dog, Captain, the Boston Terrier, which I am a huge Boston Terrier fan, that's what Bailey is, came to greet okay. him at the house. And so it warmed my heart to know that your father came home to a Boston Terrier, which was there to uh, greet him and warm his bed at night because I'm a huge I, Boston Terrier. I don't know if that dog is in this picture or not. I think Deacon's in that picture. Yeah. Um, don't know if you can see it very well. I just, I can't get over this. Jeff and I, for those of y'all following along at home, we've had the unreal experience of getting text messages of photos of uh, your father's p41 the k bar family <clears throat> photos and it's just unreal to have you here and i guess first and foremost we need to give a a big thank you to galen wagner who um has been on the yes. show uh for putting us together um i yep. guess i'll leave it to you explain to the audience how we came to be here and how you and galen got hooked up and how i got a weird text message at seven in the morning said hey would you be interested in having henry sledge on your show uh sure yeah so to to put some perspective on that guys um i there is a facebook group called world war ii in the pacific um i joined that or i think i was invited to join it but i joined it and the Museum of the Marine Corps, I think it was, put they, they do this thing called Marine Monday. Okay. And they put a post up. I mean, I had no idea this was going to happen. This kind of stuff just happens all the time. They put a post up about my dad. It showed a picture of him in his dress blues. Very iconic picture. <clears throat> and they had a blurb about him, about a paragraph, talking about his biography in the book and all that. And that got shared onto the World War II in the Pacific Facebook group. And I went on there and looked at it, and people were just really responding to it, and it, it was heartwarming to me, of course. So I put a post on there saying, hey, you know, I'm I'm E.B. Sledge's son. I'm, it's been suggested to me that I should do, at some point in the future, do a podcast on my dad or on my because I'm passionate about PTO history as well as just my dad's legacy. 
<clears throat> would anybody be interested in that? Galen was one of the people, and it was a huge response. I mean, it just blew me away. But Galen was one of the people who responded to that. And, you know, he hit like, and he put a comment, and I saw his name. I knew I could tell he lived in the in Mobile area, which, of course, I love Mobile. My brother lives in Fairhope. And he said, i got a friend, Don Abernathy. He does a World War II podcast. I can hook you guys up. And so that that's kind of how we got to be where we are, Don. And so you and I got the chat, and then I sent Jeff a text. And Jeff, what did you think when the text message came across your phone? I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, I think I was down in Crystal Beach still when, when you sent me that. And it was just, uh, yeah, you know, everybody in the greatest generation is is equally important for, for our success in World War II and who we are today, you know. But there are some that are, sometimes a little extra special and sometimes it's the help of a, of a book or of course a movie that kind of helps highlight who these ordinary people were that did extraordinary things. And, and, you know, Henry, of course, you know, your dad was definitely fell into that category as one of those extraordinary, uh, you know, among, among his generation. So yeah, uh, you know, our, our little podcast is, uh, you know, it's been growing and it's been really enjoyable to be able to share you know, Don and our, uh, our passion, you know, to be able to talk about it with people in a podcast, you know, is it's something that a lot of people don't get to do, you know. So anytime we have a guest on here or, or whatever, it's really it, it's refreshing, you know, um, to be able to share for us to be an avenue for you to share, you know, like you said about your dad's legacy. So I'm just I'm just proud to be a part of it. Well, hey, um, I'm. Thank you guys for having me. I mean, like I told Don, I hope you got a lot of questions because I do better answering questions than, you know. Well, absolutely. And Jeff and I are both honored to have you use our podcast as a way for you to, um, you know, determine or not whether or not you want to get into something like this. And we're, we're very grateful. But with that being said, let's get into a little bit. Um, obviously, the with the old breed, I think the first publishing was in 1981. And, and as you and I are talking off the air, obviously, you know, when that book came out, it was a huge book. And, um, but a majority of the people who read the book were people who had interest in World War II. And so what was things like when the book came out for your family, uh, for your father? I know you, you're telling us that you remember the original manuscripts. Your mom was typing it up. Do you remember those times when your, your mom and your dad were spending hours, I would assume, um, him, you know, looking at the Bible, which you have. Jeff, you ready yes. for this? Show Jeff the Bible. The Bible is sitting there on his desk. The Bible that we've all seen. Are, are we streaming on YouTube right now? Yes, we're streaming on YouTube. Okay. And so when your dad... I got it in this case. I'm sorry about that. But I, this thing has been pawed over by Ken Burns, <laughs> Tom Hanks, you name it. And mom, my mom finally just said, Henry, put that thing in a case. I'm tired of people pawing through it. They're going to tear the cover off. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we, we understand why. Yep. You know. Please don't say think I say that with any irritability at all, but that that's the Bible. Well, Jeff, being someone who's worked in many museums, he can definitely understand the importance of uh, what you know. And people don't people don't realize this, especially when it comes to paper artifacts. Every single time you open it once, you know, think about comic book nerds who have that early edition of Superman or Spider Man or whatever. They don't want to ever take it out of that plastic sleeve, and because sure. they know every time. A finger, even with gloves on, every time you open that up, there's just risk involved. And so definitely with something like that, you got to protect. Right. 
Well, so you were asking me if, if, if I was reading the question right about early memories. Mm-hmm. Of the book. I mean, I can remember. So when I, till when I was born until the time I was seven years old, eight years old, we lived in, in a house on Pineview Road, Montevallo. Then we moved to the house that where my brother and I really grew up. I remember <clears throat> being five or six years old, late at night, my dad sitting up by the fireplace, um, and he, he always wrote on legal pads. And we actually, all those legal pads are down at Auburn in the archives. I've seen them. Um, but he always wrote in pencil, yellow legal pads, and... <clears throat> probably not long after he and my mom got married, which obviously would predate my brother and me, he took the pieces of paper out of the Bible and, and expounded on those notes and made an outline. Okay. What I remember is getting up late at night and coming through there in my pajamas with little footies on them, you know, dad, dad, what are you doing? And my dad's nickname for me my whole life, I don't know why, but he, he called me Big Shot. And I remember saying, oh, Big Shot, I'm just sitting here working on something. And he'd be sitting there, you know, by the fireplace writing. And I'd say, okay, well, I'm going to bed, you know, and he'd send me off to bed. But uh, that was, those are the earliest memories. Um, I remember very well, you know, going to the dime store in Montevallo and getting the, the plastic bags with the soldiers, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the green plastic soldiers. Yep. And I would play with those things. And I can remember now that we would have moved at this point. So I'd be like eight years old or so. I remember being on the floor in the den, playing with those little green plastic soldiers and hearing my mom in the laundry room behind the den, typing the manuscript. Wow. And there was a table, this little rickety table. And I can close my eyes and still see that manuscript just piling up like this. And, you know, my brother and I would take it and read it because it was double-spaced, you know, just typed on an old typewriter. And, you know, we would read it. And, of course, what my father's always said, his reason for wanting to write the book was to create a written record for my brother and me to have some understanding of what he went through in World War II. Because we all had an interest in military history. We had ancestors who fought in the Civil War, and it was always fascinating to us to read their letters that they wrote home. And so he wanted to create something for for the family to have some idea of what he had seen and experienced as a Marine. And I think it was, you know, my mom was typing this stuff, and, and you know, she, it's well known. She said, Gene, this is pretty extraordinary. You ought to get this published. Yeah. And of course, my, you know, if, if you had known my dad, he was not a self-aggrandizing person at all. I mean, really self-effacing. Um, and he was like, no, there's no way anybody's going to want to read this, you know. But she persisted. And I remember, you know, a lot of late night conversations. There was a study in our house on the second floor where um, – he spent most of his time, it was on the back side of the house where I grew up and he would sit in there for hours writing, you know, the manuscript. And of course they would meet and talk about, well, you know, we need to get contacts. And he, he started contacting uh, some old officers that he had, he had known uh, to lend their credibility to it. Austin Schaffner being one of them. Um, And I remember a lot of long phone conversations. Um, 
I remember, man, I can close my eyes and still see this huge manila envelope with the manuscript and he had sent it to a publisher. And I remember the mail came one day and he, you know, I was, I walked up to the, to the mailbox with him and he said, takes this thing out. It was a, he said, well, this is probably a rejection. And it was a publisher sending the manuscript back saying we're not interested. Wow. I was going to ask you how many he went through before he got accepted. Third one. Wow. Third one was the charm. You know, I, it's, it's gotta be a little weird that here you are talking to two relative strangers and you talk about when your parents get married and I can pick up this book and say, well, your parents got married on March 12th, 1952. Yeah. Um, what did your, I know from the book China Marine, if for those of you following along at home or listen to the podcast, I'm sure most of you have read, um, with the old breed pick up China Marine. This is a very good, um, point period, Stop. It, it wraps everything up. And you and I are talking about this, that when your father sent in the original manuscript, it basically included a lot of the material from China Marine. But as right. the book saw editors, they said, okay, we, you're telling us that they had a page quota that they wanted to stick to. Wait, say that again. Now. You're telling me before the show that they said, Hey, we want to keep this within so many pages. And Oh yeah. So when Presidio press, who I think has been bought by Random House, when, when they agreed to publish the book, you know, 1980-ish. Um, and I can remember my dad and my mom talking about this, and they were like, well, hey, this thing's too big for the average person. You know, 300, 320 pages, something like that. Let's keep it around that. Let's have you, you know, the beginning, Peleliu, Okinawa, you come home, let's end it right there. Um the whole part about doing China Marine, which, you know, my dad's China service, I mean, he cherished those times. That was a healing time for him. And <clears throat> I mean, really, you know, Don, you just read China Marine. It's been years since I read it. Um, that episode, that, that part in there where they're on the ramparts of that fort watching the Japanese tank column go out at dusk. And my dad, and I, maybe I'm getting ahead of things. Maybe I no, shouldn't go into all no, that. You can go into it. Well, the reason I bring up is one in this book, your, your father explains that he met your mom at a friend's wedding, but yes. to, to rewind real quick to what you're getting at, I, most of, I'm a world war two guy and Jeff, you may be the same way, but you, then again, you're more military minded. Maybe you knew, I just assumed, okay, 1945, we know from, from what the old breed, the horrible story said on Okinawa, they got to the one shore. They said, okay, turn around, walk the other direction and clean up the battlefield and bury the dead, which your father was very resentful for. Right. Obviously. But the fact that people don't realize that, um, China had a power vacuum, kind of like we're seeing right now over the Middle East. Won't get into that, but China had a power vacuum and you had, uh, the China nationalist army, which was allied with the United States and the, the, the air force or the army air corps was flying in nationalist soldiers, trying to get them through Northern China, but you had the communist party coming up. And as you're saying here, here your father was and other members of, of his, you know, K three five who were assigned there, they're sitting in this fort, if you were, and the Japanese who are still there are now fighting on the side of the China nationalist. And he, the, for him and for us, the war is over, but he's got artillery flying over his head 
as right. And as he said in there, I don't know what they're thinking, but for some reason the the China nationalists they fire their artillery at the same exact time every night. So by clockwork, so that all the communists have to do is get in their bunkers and wait until the the three minutes pass. But he's yeah. the war's over for him. But here he is could very well have a short round. Uh, there were Marines over there who lost their lives in in those skirmishes protecting those trains, and he's watching. These Japanese soldiers, Jeff, if you can imagine this, with a tank, and he's standing there with the same Thompson he had on Okinawa. How do you go from fighting an enemy for two years, sleeping in foxholes with one eye open, waiting on a bonsai charge, your condition to shoot when you see one, and now you got a whole platoon walking past you, and you've got to prevent from doing what you're trying to do, which is shoot them. Cause now all of a sudden they're on your team and he just watched them go out to fight against the, the help, the nationalist Chinese army fight against the Chinese communists. It's just <clears throat> mind blowing that it, it, you're literally seeing, I mean, the way my dad described that they're on the ramparts of the fort, it's dusk and their orders were be locked and loaded, but you're there to just don't intervene. Don't fire unless you're fired upon protect yourself. And he said, you know, he writes here, they hear the, the hobble news. You know, it's a column of like 50 troops and maybe two type 95 tanks. And, you know, the dust is stirred up. The, the tank's headlights are on and it's cutting through the, the dust. And as the tanks pass under them and the troops are, you know, in their helmets and everything, um, and it's under them. And, and, and the commander and one of the turrets has the turret open. He's got his ceremonial headdress, a ceremonial samurai white gloves and he looks up at him and salutes as he goes by. And my dad, I remember, I remember him and me talking about that and you, you know, Oh my, but we're out there going, we've been killing these SOBs for two years and now they're our allies. It, it was literally, if you think about it and you've already done a great job setting it up, Don, it was the beginning of the cold war, which defined the, the period that I grew up in. You know, I remember when the Russians went into Afghanistan in 77 and being terrified of seeing Leonid Brezhnev. I mean, I was like, man, this guy's going to drop a nuclear, you know, he's going to shoot missiles at us. But not only were they the allies, but they had on the same damn uniform that he was shooting at six months before. Right. So it's not like, okay, here's Jazz, but they're in, you know, uniform change. No, same uniform, same gear, same equipment. And, you know, these guys have PTSD. They've had yes. nightmares. They see, they've been seeing these guys in their sleep and here they are watching them and just fighting the urge to do what they've been trained to do for years. And it's just, to me, that part was crazy, but he goes on in great detail um, about his relationships with uh, the family and the, and I want to bring this up. I know um, during your time growing up, did your father bring up the, um, the preacher and the family that he stayed with over in China off the, on throughout your childhood, or was it just come up every mm-hmm. once in a while? I you think know, it was Father Marcel. So, you, you hear so many people say, well, my father, grandfather was here, there, or wherever, but he never talked about it. Okay. For whatever reason, my father was not taciturn about it at all. Okay. I mean, I can remember, and if I stray too much in trying to answer your question, I apologize. No worries. But, you know, he, there, there was, what I'm trying to say is there wasn't much about it all that he didn't talk about. I mean, you know, he didn't talk about the blood and the gore when I was a little kid, sure. but, 
you know, I can remember being out. In fact, there's a picture of, of me out in the yard. I was probably four years old with my little play bench set, you know, workbench in the backyard. And my dad's in the background with his HBT cap, just like you guys are wearing. <clears throat> I mean, I know that's a later model, actually, with a screen printed EGA, but he had his HBT cap, which I've got it back there in the closet behind me. And he would wear it when he'd be out in the yard doing yard work. Now, we're talking, you know, 1969, probably. Um, it's a lot more thread threadbare now, I'm sure. Know, but but I've got it. But um, you know, I can remember. But to to stick to to your question about the Chinese family, my knowledge of that was not so factual. I mean, I was aware that he had been in China after World War II. Yeah. Yeah, it was Dr. Song, his family. Funny thing, you're talking about my hat. It's very hard to find reproductions that don't have the EGA on it, and Jeff can attest this. I did find one. It's actually on a slow boat from China right now. I did find one on eBay the other day, and it says, no logo, because when I bought this one, this one's actually close to seven years old now. It's got rust spots on it. It's super salty from the Florida sun. It looks great, but I wish it didn't have the EGA on it, but I actually have one coming. Did World War II impressions? I think I got one from them years ago. Um, this particular one, when I first got into the hobby, I, I got this one off eBay years ago, but go ahead, Jeff, you know, you've ordered a lot of uniforms from these guys. Yeah. I mean, I, I, maybe I'm mistaken, but I thought it was identical to the cover that the army was issued. No, uh, it's got a shorter bill on it and it has these, um, the army one is more rounded, whereas the Marine Corps kind of had these for lack of better term, I'm going to say, um, seams on them or inseams it kind of makes these little points whereas the army one's more rounded like a baseball cap and the bill's a little shorter i mean i'd have to step away from the camera but i can get my dad's if you want to see it by all means all right give me give me a minute And, and that's something jeff maybe we can do on the next episode i have my army one um they are a little different believe it or not but yeah um i think the bills are a little shorter i could be wrong but they they seem to have a little bit of a different shape it could be, yeah. It could be the bill. I mean, I know you can you can kind of shape an army to look like an eight point yeah. cover. Yeah. But yeah, I, I I know there maybe there is a difference. I thought they were quite similar. No, they, uh, but, yeah, they got a little bit different. It could be. It could be different. But um, yeah. So definitely for you guys, and we're going to get into with the old breed and and the making of the Pacific Wow, and that's actually his his penny J on there. Yes. That's it, amazing. It's, you know, it's pretty well, pretty well worn. But does it ever occur to you that these things that you have, people would just die to just remotely even have one item in their collection? Like, show show everybody at home the K bar, and I want to bring this up. Um, in the China Marine, at the very end when he gets home, he went to Camp Lejeune. He had to report. He had to fill out a document. And they had an itemized list of all the things that you were expected to return. And the two things that he said he intentionally did not return, he, he listed as lost in the war, was that K-Bar knife and his haversack. Did you see that haversack? Was that haversack around your house growing up? Do you guys still have the haversack? <laughs> this is mind-blowing to me. That's amazing. Can you see his name? Yeah, it's, pretty- it's, it's right there, Sledgehammer. Um. Uh- yeah, I mean, I, this stuff was, you know, again, because of, oh, I didn't, so you want to, you guys want to, I know you want to see the 45 he carried. Now, Jeff, you're very familiar with the HBO of the Pacific, right? Oh, yeah, of course. 
of course, and, and Henry and I were talking about this. That is the gun that Henry's grandfather sent to his father. And now for those of you watching the home or listening to the podcast, you think, wait a minute. In the HBO of the Pacific, he was sent a revolver. And Henry and I had a very long discussion about this before we went on the air when we were doing troubleshooting. Apparently, that was a decision made by, well, according to the scuttlebutt that was passed down through Henry's connection with the production, is that was a, a last-minute decision, allegedly perhaps made by Dick Dye. But um, Henry was explaining to me that during the production, and maybe we should back up a little bit, but anyhow, we'll, we'll get to it. He was sending photos of his dad's stuff, including that 45. And then when he yep. went and saw the rough cut, he was as shocked as we are now. Cause I always just assumed that your grandfather sent him a 40, uh, the revolver and not, that was his grandfather's world war one issue, 1911. Well, yeah, actually you are correct. Um, it is a Springfield armory. Um, and, and somewhere around here, I don't know, we moved a little over a year ago, but I do have the document. I have the document where my grandfather went down to Mobile County Sheriff's Department and got, you know, got permission from them to send this to my dad who was overseas. And I remember, I, I man, I can still hear my dad talking about it. You know, we came down the gangplank of the ship when I came home because I'm like, Dad, do you have your helmet? Do you, you know, what about your rifle? What about your carbine, your Tommy gun? Um, <clears throat> you know, no, no, we had to turn all that stuff in. But he said, you know, when I came down the gangplank, they had a lieutenant there checking everybody off, making sure we didn't keep stuff. And he said, I, I had my 45. And um, I remember him saying, I told him, sir, I, this is my personal property. I have a paper to prove me. Lieutenant just waved him on. Yeah. Jeff, you have any particular questions about um, anything really before we get into, because Henry has some pretty interesting stuff about how the production came and his family being contacted to, um, to get involved with the book, you know, with the production. But before we get out, you have any questions for Henry? Yeah. Uh, we're like, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes in this episode. I'm still starstruck. <laughs> I'm speechless, man. I'm just enjoying it's not it. Of me. It's good. You know, <laughs> well, to be fair, yes, it's for who your father is, but it'd be like a Yankee fan sitting down and having the opportunity to talk to the son of Babe Ruth. You know what I mean? It's just well, you're. I mean, not to put them in the same realm, but because and your yeah. father, your father kind of pointed out in China Marine, he kind of feels because he is a member of a staggering low number of men who did not get wounded or died in those campaigns from the First Marine Division, and he kind of mentions in here he he almost feels like it was because it was up to him to share the story to get that book out. Yeah, and so because your father is one of let's say seven voices of that era at least in the mainstream you know vernacular obviously there's a bunch of books on it but we're mm -hmm. talking about in the mainstream realm the realm of my normal 43 year old counterpart who doesn't spend all their time producing podcasts and reading world war ii stuff the guy who's flipping through spike tv or hbo mm -hmm. and sees the pacific on his amazon list for band of brothers we're talking about those people the fact that mainstream people who aren't in World War II know who your father is, is, you know, it's it's kind of a big deal. Well, you know, I actually, and I can't remember, you know, we've texted back and forth a lot, Don. I can't remember if we talked about this or not, but so Sid Phillips, you know, was my dad's best friend. Mm -hmm. And that was on and, my list. And I read, 
and, and Jeff, I heard you plug in Adam Makos. Uh, Adam's a really good friend of mine. We worked together on a lot of stuff when the Pacific came out, but um, I am actually reading his book, Voices of the Pacific, right now and really enjoying it. Um, but Sid, Sid's talked to a lot. Yeah, you know, I grew up calling Sid Uncle Sid. Well, that's what uh, I was going to say to you as well, not to cut you off, is not only is your father E.B. Sledge, but your uncle is Sid Phillips. I mean, that's yeah, two people uncle, who I mean, put two, you know, yes, we, but we proverbial uncle, but yes. But it was always, you know, Uncle Sid. I mean, I never called him anything but that. Now, you know, we would go years and not see him. Uh, you know, when you're he's busy raising his family, my dad was busy with my brother and me. So, you know, but... Um, of course, when, when I did see him as a kid, I mean, we never talked about World War II stuff, but, you know, I did know that he and my dad were best friends and and all of that. So, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> but he he mentioned in Voices of the Pacific, it's actually on Valor Studios' website, there is a letter, and I never even knew about this, that my dad wrote him in like 19, well, sometime back in the 80s, I guess, and Sid was talking about how, you know, we would go to First Marine Division reunions and Eugene would come up to my room and just because he was such a celebrity. And I'm telling you, if you knew my dad, there's nothing he would have hated more. And he just would go to Sid's room and hide out. He wanted to see his buddies, but, you know, everybody wanted to meet him and introduce him to their wives and, and all that. And, and he, he he was a self. I mean, he could be very well spoken and very outspoken. Um, but just not at all self-aggrandizing, you know? Um, but, but yeah, I remember that really well. There's gotta be a part of you. Cause I know, and, and believe it or not, we are getting down to that five minute mark. So we are going to take a break and then we'll, we'll do is we'll talk a little bit about the Pacific. And then if you're okay. up for it, Henry, maybe we'll have you on the next episode and we can talk about some other stuff. Cause time just flies by so fast. I know, man, I feel like I've hardly gotten started. Exactly. And so maybe we'll, we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll cover a little bit of the Pacific stuff and then we'll have you back for the next episode. If everybody's cool with that, I'm sure the audience will yep. be great, but there's gotta be a part of you now, all these years later, now that sadly Sid has passed as well, that when you fired up the Pacific this weekend, and there he is in living color and HD. There had to be a party that was so glad that he had the opportunity to sit down and have his image captured at the beginning of those episodes. Oh yeah. I mean, I remember the, in fact, the documentary that you played the clip from that was 1991. I remember when he and my mom went out of town to go do that. Uh, Cause Bill Layden was there. Bergen was there. Jay Delo was there. Um, I remember that really well. And, you know, I, I'll tell you this, and it's kind of sad, but it does speak to being glad that my father did share those experiences, despite how emotionally eviscerating they were for him. You know, every time he would be interviewed for something, he would come home and I mean, he would be sick. Oh, I'm sure he, he would just be, you know, physically sick blood pressure would be all out of whack he'd be just you could just tell he was a mess and and he would get over it i mean you know the point was driven home and you really see it in the okinawa episode and part 10 where you know this this young man was just gutted as, as they all were and you know 
poor Sid famously said, oh, just forget about all that. Can't dwell on it. Well, you know, my dad did dwell on it. And he dwelled on it to the point of writing, you know, a book or two books, if you want to be technical about it. But um, he carried a lot with him. But I mean, I want to, because they talked about this in the Ken Burns thing too. He don't ever think that it got the better of him. I mean, he conquered that. He got a PhD in biology. He married a beautiful woman, my mom. He treated her like a goddess. Um, He raised me. He raised my brother. I mean, he was a fantastic dad. We had a great relationship. He didn't burden us with any of that emotional baggage, if you will. Um, I mean, he did it right. If that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And I, I was just thinking, you know, your father's coming back from doing these interviews and these TV specials and all that uh, back in the 80s and 90s, because there's quite a few of them on YouTube. And yeah. you're talking about how he'd come home emotionally. Jane, in, in the back of my mind, because I'm just fresh off of reading it, in the back of the book, he's saying that how he was able at a certain point to go to sleep at night is he had a recipe. He would sit there during when he was going to school to get his master's degree in biology. He would sit there and think about plants and animals and all that and by he said he would basically do an hour worth of research or an hour worth of studying at night and then that would turn his dreams into biological stuff and not stuff right. the war and so i'm thinking here is 1990s he's already been a professor he's already i mean he's already guys master's degrees already been doing his work and he's probably comes home and goes up and probably reads about biology for an hour just to subside all the thoughts that he just talked about for an eight-hour recording session that day sure so we are going to take a quick break. You guys hold tight there who's watching on YouTube and Facebook, and uh, we're going to make us a quick quick turnaround. Hold tight, and we will be right back. And we are back from that quick interlude. If you guys want to help us support the show and help us prevent in the future from doing things like that, please head over to the WTSPWorldWar2.com and sign up for Patreon. Patreon's a dollar a month. You can help support the show. You get access to exclusive content. And if you sign up for the $7.40 a month plan, you'll get a free T-shirt after month two. And also, while you're at the website, WTSPWorldWar2.com, go ahead and click on the social link and find our YouTube, our YouTube channel and subscribe to that. And as always, this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is brought to you by our friends at Computers. At Computers has been providing IT solutions for Southwest Florida since 2004. And even if you don't live in Southwest Florida, they can help you by giving them a call 239-283-1120 with your assistance as long as your internet works. Of course, they can run your computer and help you with all your computer programs. Now that we got all that stuff out of the way, let's get back to it. Uh, once again, we are here with Jeff and Henry Sledge. Jeff, do you have any... Uh, I'll let you go ahead and let's get into the Pacific television show side of this. And uh, you have any questions or lead-ups for that you want to help toss in here? Uh, you know, I guess it's inevitable we're going to have to talk about the miniseries eventually with Henry. And I know nobody's asked him about it before. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't have anything uh, specific. I was actually hoping that uh, maybe some of our listeners would kind of w- w- would creep in here and, and have a question about something with production or detail here and there. Uh, I don't have any specifically. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty well aware of that intensive uh, project that it must have been. Um, and that there's people uh, like, like Don and I, that if there is an accuracy, we're going to, we're going to point it out and, and be the ones to bring it to light, you know, as opposed to right. the, it got right. You know, I, I try not to do that. You know, I, I try to, kind of 
you know, uh, give everybody the, the benefit of the doubt. And like I said, I, you know, when, when Don mentioned about Dale die making that, uh, that call last minute, basically essentially changed the 1911 to a, to a revolver. Um, there's, there's gotta be some underlying reason why he did that, you know, and, and not that we may necessarily agree with it. Um, but Hollywood is Hollywood and, you know, they've got, they've got an, uh, there there had to be a reason. I don't think they just changed history just to change history to be different. I could be mistaken, <laughs> but, um, I appreciate what they do. And I did just want to say, Henry, that I wish, uh, I wish I had the opportunity and, and I truly sincerely mean this. I wish I had the opportunity to thank your dad, not for, what he did during the war, not for what he did when he got home from the war, but for giving the opportunity to the mainstream to know people like Akak Haldane, the yep. guys that didn't come home. That Hillbilly. We would have never known who they were if it wasn't for people like your dad. Because yep. I can tell you firsthand, the guys that come home, that's not who it has to be about. It has to be. Uh, so people will read your book. <laughs> they want to know your story. But I, I, I'm pretty certain your dad would feel the same way as I do is to use him to know about the other boys that didn't come home because um, that's what everything was always about. And and I thank your dad for giving the people who have seen the miniseries, the people who have read his books or read Hugh Ambrose's book to know about boys like that that didn't get the chance to come home and tell their story. Right. Uh, yeah, he he had, and he would have said the same thing. The heroes are the ones who didn't make it home. And if anybody's listening, I'm not listening because you won't be able to hear this until tomorrow. But if anybody's watching on YouTube or uh, Facebook, if you want, if you have questions for Henry, uh, we can try this. Give us a call at 239-299-3352. This will be your opportunity. And if you're a little gun shy, maybe send us an email to mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com and we'll read your questions for Henry the next time Henry comes on. Um, give us a, a brief rundown, if you will. You're, you're explaining to me through uh, phone conversations and text messages that one day you just got a call, I believe, from your brother saying, hey, um, someone in Hollywood's trying to gain rights to dad's book. How did the whole thing come to play to your all's family? Um, yeah, 2004. And the, the thing was, somebody years ago, and I, I don't remember if it was in the 80s or the 90s, somebody had bought the film rights to it and wanted to do something with it. <clears throat> uh, and, and that never did get any traction. I'm but, so glad that that didn't come to fruition because just the way technology yeah. was and storytelling, it would have been, it wouldn't have been nowhere what it is today. But yeah, it was 2004. Um, I had probably finished watching Band of Brothers for the 783rd time. And, uh, you know, of course, was very familiar with Saving Private Ryan and the whole, you know, Hank Spielberg treatment. And, and I mean, I can even remember having phone conversations with my brother about, man, I mean, I know World War II is not your thing, but God, you know, Saving Private Ryan and, and Band of Brothers, it was so powerful, so visceral can you imagine what it would be like if they did something with dad's book? And, you know, my brother was like, man, the world war two has been done and done and done. I mean, it'll never happen. Well, well reason 2004 spring of 2004 to be exact. Uh, my brother started getting some pings that um, 
people were making inquiries as to the film rights. And so we, we found out Bruce McKenna that he was interested in starting that process. And it was April of 04, I believe when my mother and I were flown out to Hollywood and we sat down with, and so was Sid Phillips, by the way. And we sat down and were interviewed and, and met with, Hugh Ambrose was alive at the time, uh, and he and Bruce McKenna, and and you know really, <clears throat> despite I had some some mm, slightly contentious conversations with Bruce in the wake of the miniseries or when it was, you know you know about some some things that artistically were being done, but I mean really Bruce was the one and he deserves the credit you know and, and I'm grateful to Bruce McKenna. He recognized the impact because the way he explained it to us, we sat down when we got out there and he said, so Tom and Steven were just blown away by Band of Brothers, how successful it's been. And there's this palpable feeling that we need to do something for the guys in the Pacific. And Tom's all about that. He, he, he wants to do it. And he came to me, let's do something for the guys in the Pacific. Well, Bruce held up a copy of my dad's book and says, if you are going to do that, you have to have this book. And it was with the old breed. And uh, there you go. And the Tom Lee classic 2000 yard stair painting. And so that, that is a very simplified version of how the process started. And, you know, we, I mean, we, we all went out to dinner that night. And, and I mean, I remember Bruce and Kirk Sadusky was with us too. And I remember Bruce saying, look, this is going to be a long process. And, and I would also say, you know, in, in the nascent stages, the plan was to be 13 parts and five main characters. And I remember that very well. And so it was going to be Lecky, Sledge, Bassalone. The fourth character was going to be a naval aviator, um, was it, he was at Midway, was it? Vernon, yeah, Vernon McHugh. No, it wasn't him. It was uh, Elder, Robert Elder, or, or was it Best? I think Richard? Vernon was in Hugh's book. That he, was a, he was a dauntless pilot at Midway. I thought it was either Robert Elder or Richard Best. And I, I should, I mean, Lord, I've read so many naval aviation World War II books, I should know, but... Um, I have been away from it for a while and I'm just getting back into it, but he was going to be a character and the fifth character. I honestly don't even remember. I don't even remember who the fifth character was supposed to be, but 13 parts, five characters. That was the idea uh, because they wanted, I think I remember Bruce saying, yeah, Steven really wants to do the entire panoply of the, you know, of the Pacific war from start to wants to cover all of it. Um, so, you know, roll on through as the years went by, um, it got whittled down to where it was, okay, it's going to be 10 parts and it's going to be three characters and guys, I don't know how well known it is, but I mean, it almost didn't happen there. There was a, I mean, the ball almost got dropped. Really? Yes. It was, uh, when flags of our fathers came out. I, and I can remember when they were working that movie up, uh, I remember the discussion because the Pacific, the see, Flags of Our Fathers came out, was it 2006? I can look. Yeah, I think it was 06. The Pacific 
was not officially in the, the expression that Bruce used with us through the whole process was yeah, getting greenlit. Mm-hmm. Getting greenlit. This thing, it doesn't matter what we do, how much money we spend, who we talk to, how excited we get. If it's not greenlit, it doesn't happen. And greenlit is where the suits at HBO sit down with Tom Hanks and whoever, and they go, okay, you're greenlit, go. We'll start writing the checks. 2004 was our initial meeting in Hollywood that I just told you about. It did not get greenlit until 2008. Wow. So Flags Our Fathers came out, and I remember – you know, I went and saw it and my perception of it was it didn't really do that well. And if I remember correctly, I can't remember if Bruce told me this or he might've told my brother and then my brother told me, I think I talked to Bruce McKenna about this. Um, in the wake of Flags of Our Fathers, and, and I don't mean to disrespect that story, that book, that movie, that was not my intention here, sure. but I'm just being honest with what I remember. Mm-hmm. I think it lost some money. Yeah, and if I if I remember correctly, Bruce had to get on a plane and go see Tom Hanks because Tom Hanks was actually saying, "Hey, maybe World War II isn't relevant anymore. Maybe we don't need to do this." Well, Hollywood's synonymous for that. Anytime you have a project that has just the same theme as another project, if the original project doesn't do well, it'll it'll put that stink on other projects. It may have nothing to do with other than the same setting. It, I mean, it happens all yeah. the time. He, Bruce had to go, he got on a plane and went to see Tom because Tom was ready to just pull the plug on it. Like, yeah. Maybe it's not relevant. Maybe, you know, we've had Band of Brothers, Saving Private Ryan, and now this. This thing's not doing that great. It's not making money. And I may be wrong, guys, but I, I thought Flags of Our Fathers lost like $60 million. Wow. I could be wrong. If I am, I apologize. But I just remember the perception. It really did not do that well. But he got on a plane, went to see Tom Hanks, got him back on board, assured him, yes, Tom, it is relevant. It will always be relevant. We need to do this. And and so things got back on track. And then in 2008, we got the call, hey, HBO, HBO greenlit it. We're a go. It's happening. Yeah, according to Wikipedia, although it was considered a box office failure, only grossing $65.9 million against the $90 million budget. So they definitely lost some money there. You know, it's it's funny you used the phrase, and I, and I told you about this on the phone. When I came across this book, it was because um, of the, the documentary that came out on PBS called The War. And yes. in that... And I found the book, the hard copy, at Books a Million on sale, and it has um, Sid Phillips has a chapter in there, and he says, because my buddy Eugene was a better writer than I ever will be, I want to introduce this paragraph from his book with the old breed, to which I quickly went out on eBay and found this at the time for a steal at $13 because the, the miniseries hasn't been out yet. And I read this, and I went to... Carrie at the time and I said the same thing that he said if I I literally told her I was so just floored by this book I said if they ever do a mini series like Band of Brothers it has to be about this and I think it was like seven months later they came out oh they're making the Pacific and it's going to be about Eugene Sledge and I was so happy but um, we were we were kind of talking about some of the inaccuracies earlier about the change of the 45 
and it's and it's a good thing that Bruce was such a good contact for you as far during production because there was another thing that the director was wanting to change. And Bruce okay. wasn't down for it, and he knew you wouldn't be down for it, but he had to do his due diligence by reaching out to you and ask, share that story with the, the listeners because the people who watch the Pacific will, will find this quite interesting. It, yeah, and, and by the way, I mean, let me happily I will share that, but let me just say, I sat down and watched it last week for the first time since 2010, okay? Because in 2010, when I saw it, when it released, I was not happy with it. Let me assure everybody, if anybody really cares, I I like it. I think they did a good job. Well, and at the time, like you were just saying, from years had gone by that you were working on this project. Yeah. And so, you know, you were you had a lot invested in it. And before you get to your rewatch, how did how did you feel about the um the choosing of the actor to portray your father, Joseph Mazzella? Yeah, we. I remember the first time Joe called us. Um, I think, I think they made a good choice. You know, there was definitely a physical resemblance. I will say this, and with no disrespect to anybody, I think the real sledgehammer was maybe a little tougher than the way he was portrayed. <laughs> well, he was the kid from Jurassic Park, after all. <laughs> That's where I knew him from originally. It's like, well, oh, that's and, the kid look, from Jurassic I mean, Park. Joe's a nice kid. He did a good job, but I mean. And I understand. Let, let me, so to defend the way it was done, you know, like the scene where they're moving inland off the beach and, you know, Akax was, Sledge, God damn it, you gotta, gotta get out of that hole now. Mm-hmm. Come on, Sledge. You know, I mean, if my dad really wrote it accurately, and I'm pretty sure he did because he was a stickler for the truth, you know, he wasn't hiding in a hole having to be told to get out. And I'm not, again, not being disrespectful of the way Joe played the part, because I do think he put his heart into it, but to to try to see it from the perspective of the filmmakers, they had to show the, in his character arc, okay, mm-hmm. they had to show the evolution of this kid from Mobile from a genteel background and he was from the boy I mean, with my the heart murmur. Was a doctor. They they were pretty well off. And here he is with these young men who came from more blue collar, rougher backgrounds. But my dad volunteered for it. He wanted to be there. He wanted to go. And there he was. And it's all hell breaking loose at Peleliu on D Day. But it was for everybody. And they had to show that character evolution from just deer in the headlights. Oh my God! What have I got myself into? And then he evolves into on Okinawa, you know, try these. It helps with the drainage. You know, you see that that evolution where he's kind of taking charge, you know, snafus over the sledgehammer, check them out, you know. And, you know, okay, snafus, get these boots. Come on. You know, I mean, you can see the evolution. And Jeff and I have talked about this in past episodes, um, especially when it comes to Band of Brothers. Um, As you said, you got 10 episodes. You have so many characters. You're trying to get across the broader audience the maturing, the hardening of people in this environment. And so sometimes you have to take an important subject matter, an important thing that happened to a bunch of people that may not have happened to your particular character and append that story to that character just to get a point across that, you know, not everybody hit the beach were gung-ho, hard-ass guys. They're, you know, Sid Phillips turned 16 on Guadalcanal. These 
They were freaking Actually, kids. Let, let me let me stop you. Sid was seventeen when he went. He turned eighteen on Guadalcanal. Okay. Uh, yeah, you're right. He turned eighteen on Guadalcanal. But sorry to interrupt. No, 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 not at all. But there. So back to you know, and plus, I just watched a series two to give them a little credit. He tried to get out of the foxhole. He slid back in, and then they came screaming, "Get your ass out of there!" But but back to the main point. They have to take certain things and append it to somebody that it didn't actually happen to just to get a point across that, you know, these are innocent people who just went from boot camp to being put in the world's most bloody freaking battle in history. And and like you're saying, it, it helps with the character arc. Right. But yeah, I mean, I, I think Joe put his heart into it. Um, I know when we talked to him, he certainly seemed to understand the gravity of it all and, and, and so I, I I do want to laud him for that. And, and like I said, I mean, after watching it again and watching all the introductions and thinking about it, kind of letting it all sink in, um, you know, I, I thought they did a good job. I mean, I'm I and it's something I continue to watch. I mean, I, I took a an eleven year hiatus from it, um, from all of it, you know, and just was burned out on World War II. But I'm getting back into it, and I'm I'm really I've enjoyed I've rewatched it twice now. And, it, and it's a testament, kind of like Band of Brothers. Uh, Band of Brothers, they get a lot of uh, actors who maybe had a small role here and there, a lot of people we don't know, and now you see those actors all over the place. And I think it's a huge testament to the casting of the Pacific that the fact that Joseph and the young man who played Snafu went on to play Freddie Mercury and the yeah. lead guitarist in Queen. And that also goes yeah. to show their on, on-screen um, chemistry that, they, their on-stream chemistry in the Pacific was so great that they were both chosen to work on the, on that Queen project, and so it just goes to show you that, you know, they're damn good actors. Did you want me to tell the little yeah, story of the, about the so, bunker? Yeah, the bunker scene. Okay, uh, and I it was really cool to actually see that bunker on Pelo or Ingasibis when I went to Pelo in 1999. But so. Bruce McKenna called me one day and he called my mom and my brother and he said, okay, Henry, we're, we're getting really close to where we're going to shoot that scene of your father at the bunker. And the director is concerned that at this point we've seen, you know, several hours of a lot of shooting and killing and a lot of, a lot of blood and gore. And the director's concerned that, you know, the, the Amtrak came up, fired two rounds into the side of the bunker. And then, I mean, the way my dad wrote it to me was just so cool. I mean, I played that scene over so many times, especially when I went to Peleliu. And as the dust clears, standing in the door or standing in that aperture of the bunker is a Japanese soldier with a grenade trying to hit the percussion cap on his helmet to, to make it go to throw it at him. My dad draws up with his carbine and just starts squeezing off rounds into his chest. And Bruce said the director doesn't think that shooting the scene that way will convey the proper weight. And he wants to change it. I'm like, okay, well, I'm not liking where this is going. What the hell does he want to change it to? And he said, well, he, he's thinking about having your having Sledge kill the guy with his bayonet. And I said, well, Bruce, you know, my dad and I talked a lot about all of this stuff when he was alive. And I said, the only problem with that well, two problems. Number one, it's not the way my dad wrote it. You're altering what he wrote in his book. And so you're taking away from the verisimilitude of, of the whole experience. Uh, but I said, you know, I remember being a kid 
asking my dad, you know, did you ever get into a bayonet fight with a Japanese soldier? And I remember my dad saying, hell no, I never let him get that close to me. You know, we had the carbine, we had the 45, we had the M1. I wasn't going to let him get that close to me. Um, and the Japanese were well known for their skill. I, Bob, let me show you this. Uh, let's see. Wow, wow. My dad took that off a Japanese soldier in the bunker. Yeah, because in the in the in the series they show him picking one up and then yeah. throwing it down in disgust, and then that's when later up in the Umer Brogel he picks it up and he throws it down, and then you know says, "What you doing, sledgehammer? Don't yeah germs, yeah. Oh, germ, you know." But um, yeah, he he got this off a Japanese soldier in the bunker, but um, so they were going to have him, you know, stab him with his bayonet, and I said, "Well, you know, I've talked to my dad about that. He he was pretty." Articulate about having never done that. And, well, but, you know, it's, we got a, the director's really concerned. And I said, well, Bruce, look, you, you guys are going to do what the hell you want to do, but you're changing something that I really don't think should be changed. And of course, you know, my mom was just horrified at the idea because just, you know, killing somebody with a bayonet is, I guess, so much more gut wrenching than shooting them repeatedly in the chest, you know, but, um, I said, look, I'm, I don't, the moral grounds of it don't bother me. It's just the, the verisimilitude of it. You know, I know he never did that, but anyway, so Bruce said, okay, let me, let let me go back to the director. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll talk it over and we'll, we'll try to do you proud here. And, and so, and then we all know, you know, how the scene unfolded. Well, I'll be honest. Uh, the first thing that comes into my mind is I, I'd have told him, uh, you figure out a way to put that bayonet on a carbine in Paleloo that didn't have a bayonet lug. True. And yeah. come back to me. <laughs> yeah. Then we'll talk. Because I, I don't I don't uh, I, I don't see that happening unless they really would have altered history to have a a different variant carbine with a bayonet lug on it that wouldn't have been around at that time. Yeah, because they yeah. Got, they could have <laughs> got the same result. They could have got the same result with a K bar, and that would have been more authentic. Yeah, and it's still well, and it's he, still changing history. But like Jeff said, you know, it's it, you you can't put a you know you're issued a a, a car beam. You don't have a, you know where are you going to put the bayonet? And, and you know, not not to because again, I, I think they did a good job. I like the miniseries. I mean, I really do. I'm going to keep watching. They did a fine job. But you know, in that scene, Bill Laden. Uh, who was nothing, the real Bill Layden was nothing like the way he was cast, by the way. Um, you know, he's, of course, the grenade went off. He's, Gene, Gene. Nobody called my dad Gene. Everybody called him Sledgehammer. I mean, everybody called him Sledgehammer. It, you know, so I was just kind of like, why are you having, you heard that a lot in the miniseries that they call him Sledgehammer, but, uh, you know, that was a little annoying. But Less um, syllables. Easier to tell. I guess, but, you know, um, but, you know, in the, in when the flamethrower comes up and then, you know, Snafu's die, die, you know, F and die. I mean, my dad was not just sitting there staring at them doing that. I mean, mm-hmm. he was involved in the entire process. Yeah. Well, I think this might be a good place to put a pen in this episode to leave people wanting more. And Henry, if you're, you're up for it. 
uh, you're more than welcome. Maybe next up, maybe uh, next episode, we'll have you back and we'll pick up here and we'll get into a little bit more into it. Okay. Sound like a deal. Um, and we want to hear from you guys. Um, email us because I, as Henry was saying at the beginning of the podcast, part of the reason he's doing this is he is really toying with the idea of uh, starting his own podcast because he has a passion. One of the things we haven't got into, maybe we'll talk about a little more next episode is over uh, the last year or so, you've been kind of getting into the voiceover world. And, yes. um, and so we thought, well, what a better way to get comfortable behind a microphone, get comfortable reading copy and getting into the world of voiceover work than not only doing a podcast, but, you know, doing a podcast, sharing more of your father's stories and life that, you know, wasn't covered in a mini series and, you know, didn't meet that 333 page quota in the book. And, yeah. um, I think you have a lot of interesting stuff that you can, uh, to share. And I would not be surprised that when you start your podcast, if, um, more family members of, uh, some of the people, uh, that your father served with start sending stuff your way and it would be amazing to see where it goes. So email us questions for Henry and, uh, email us, let us know, um, your thoughts on Henry starting up a podcast. Um, I told him off the air, I'd be more than happy to help him, uh, figure out the logistics, all that and all, all that good stuff. But, uh, on the behalf of Jeff Copsetta and Henry Sledge, we're going to wrap it up, but we'll be back next week. And uh, not next week, but next episode, we want to hear about your trip to Peleliu. Um, yeah. You and I have talked about it off the air, and I've talked to other people who's visited those battle uh, battlegrounds, not only Pacific, but even in Europe, that once you're there and you see it in living color with your own eyes, it's got to make reading the books or watching the TV shows and the history document, it's just got to change everything. Cause you've been there, you've walked that ground and not, not to mention the fact that your father was there and that in itself has just got to be incredible to be there. So we're going to wrap it up. Henry, thank you so much. It's been a true pleasure. I know Jeff's enjoyed it as well. Uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it too. I mean, I, I hope, like I said, keep watching the miniseries. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was good, but I hope, I hope people enjoyed this. I mean, I hope they'll want to hear more. Jeff, again, closing thoughts, friend? Uh, yeah, I, I can't wait to, to kind of share my first experiences of, of watching the Pacific uh, for the first time and, and Band of Brothers as well. I can't wait to, to kind of talk from, from my perspective as well and, and, and some of my thoughts. But we'll, we'll save those for, for next time. And, Henry, I just want to say, you know, as a kid growing up, uh, uh, you know, I used to go to different air shows just because of certain veterans were going to be there, you know, like Bob yeah. Morgan you know, the pilot of Memphis Bell, things yes. like that. And I, I, uh, at 38 years old now, I have that same feeling of being able to talk to you. This is, this is like the next best thing for sure. Uh, at getting to something like that. So yeah, to, to say that it's been a pleasure for me is, is certainly an understatement. I can't wait till the next episode. Well, well, good. Thank you. And thank you guys so much. And we will talk to you all next week. Whoop, wrong button. See that? We're good. We're going great. Everything was fantastic. We're being professional. And I go and hit the wrong button because I'm simply trying to pay, play the button of my daughter saying this. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>